Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, what sort of illness does U.S. politics have and how can we heal it? Our guest is Abdul El-Sayed, who is a physician, epidemiologist, public health expert, progressive activist, and author of Healing Politics, a doctor's journey into the heart of our political epidemic. He was appointed health director of Detroit at 30 years old. He's a former professor at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. He holds a doctorate in public health from Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar and a medical degree from Columbia University. He's the host of the America Dissected Coronavirus podcast and a CNN commentator. Senator Bernie Sanders has referred to him as, quote, one of the brightest young stars in the future of the progressive movement. He is a former candidate for governor of Michigan and was one of eight appointees to the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force on Healthcare. His book, Healing Politics, can be found at healingpoliticsbook.com. Abdul El-Sayed, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, uh, to, to get going with the conversation. Uh, thanks very much for coming on and for writing this terrific book, which I've just read and I highly recommend, Healing Politics. So you, you started out at one point, you were going to be a, a doctor, and you decided not to practice medicine, to take your career in a, in a different uh, direction. How did that come about? My father immigrated from Alexandria, Egypt, and I've spent a lot of my summers there. My grandmother, aunts and uncles, cousins, grandfather and my, my grandma uh, was the wisest person I've ever met but never got to go to school. She herself gave birth to eight kids, two of whom died before the age of one. Her personal infant mortality rate was 25%. To her, you know, doctors uh, were there for all of the other six kids. You know, her eldest son, my father, uh, had watched two of his siblings pass and didn't want to be a doctor, but she really wanted me to be a, be a doctor. And um, one of the, the things that I, I couldn't help but appreciate is that when I traveled to Egypt, every summer. I would travel in, in, in 15 hours, 10 years different than life expectancy. But I could travel 15 minutes from where I grew up just outside Detroit into any neighborhood in Detroit and travel the same 10-year life expectancy gap. And I want to do something about that. I thought that was by becoming a doctor. I ended up going to medicine and then realized that um, our healthcare system, the way that we exclude low-income people, is often part of the reason why there are such huge life expectancy gaps. Uh, across communities. And so um, that led me into public health. And then ultimately, uh, my work in public health led me elsewhere. But, um, you know, I I still uh, sort of look at surgery and say, you know, it's such a beautiful way to heal a person. But if we don't rethink our healthcare system, I worry that too few people will have access to healthcare itself. And I want to be a part of solving that. It's a very interesting part of the book uh, when you were the the director of public health in Detroit. I know you can't tell the whole story on this show, but but can you talk briefly about what you were able to accomplish and what it was impossible to accomplish? Yeah, I, I walked into a health uh, department that had been privatized when our city went through bankruptcy and state takeover of its finances uh, back in 2012. I walked into a department that had five city employees and 85 contractors in the back of the building where people pay parking tickets in the city of Detroit. And my job was to rebuild it. And uh, we got to work. We wanted to uh, think through how was it that we could leverage our department in public health generally uh, to break down the cycle of intergenerational poverty. We wanted our kids to be able to learn and earn in Detroit like we would want for any kid anywhere. 
which led us to thinking about what are those health outcomes that we needed to intervene on. One of them was uh, vision deficit. We found that 30% of our kids uh, would come back a year after being tested positive for vision deficit, testing positive again the next year, meaning that we knew they needed glasses, but we weren't able to get them a pair of glasses. And so we built a program to provide every child a free pair of glasses delivered at school within two weeks of a vision test. We realized that asthma is an important reason why kids uh, are forced to stay home from school, uh, many of them an average of a day every two weeks. You can't learn when you're not in school. Um, and so we wanted to take on asthma by uh, standing up to the corporations who were polluting uh, some of the most polluted parts uh, of the entire state of Michigan. Um, we knew that um, uh, teen, unwanted teen pregnancy uh, was one of the main reasons that uh, really bright, uh, capable young people are forced to drop out of school. And so uh, we wanted to empower folks with access uh, to long-acting reversible contraceptives. And those are some of the ways that we thought about how it was that we could leverage health to disrupt intergenerational poverty and rethink the role of a health department uh, in one of the poorest cities in America. When you started studying uh, epidemiology uh, in the book, one of the first studies you, you mentioned getting involved with uh, was looking at higher rates of, of low birth weight in mothers with certain ethnic surnames uh, in the time period following September 11th, 2001, that is during a period of, of bigotry and, and racism in the United States. I wonder, I wonder both if you could talk briefly about that and whether there are any up Updates you know of? Yeah, well, you know, for me, 9/11 was very personal. Um, my, uh, I come from a, a, a an Egyptian American uh, background, and, and I am devoutly Muslim. Um, and I was a junior in high school when I watched the second plane hit the twin towers in my chemistry class in high school, and it fundamentally changed the experience uh, of being from that point on uh, American kid with an asterisk um, in the eyes of so many people. Um, and, you know, I knew what it meant. My little brother's name is Sama, and I remember how he was being picked on mercilessly in school. So I knew what it meant for my family. But, um, you know, I, I, as I was uh, uh, working in an epidemiology research group, uh, one of the postdocs showed me this, book, this uh, study had, that, had, um, that had looked at what the consequences of the experience of 9-11 was for uh, women with ethnically distinctive uh, Arab surnames in California, 3,000 miles away um, from the 9-11 uh, ground zero. And what it showed is that uh, these women in the six months following 9-11 um, had a 20% increase in the risk of adverse birth outcomes relative to women with ethnic surnames in the same six-month period in the year prior. And if the child's name was ethnically distinctive, that went up 100%. It was astounding uh, to recognize that, that the experience of something 3,000 miles away could mark itself in something as biologically important as the birth weight of a child with implications for the rest of that child's life. And so, you know, for me, that was a, a really important uh, recognition. And we have a responsibility to recognize that tension, the, the kind of divisiveness that we've seen under Donald Trump, which has increased the uh, experiences of, uh, of hate crime uh, against Arab Americans and Muslim Americans that those have consequences even beyond uh, the direct experience of those hate crimes. We all we have a responsibility uh, to step up to them uh, and take them on. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so uh, is anyone continuing that, that same study at this point? I know that there is increasing uh, work that looks at the consequences of uh, hate crimes and ethnic tension uh, on the health of people of color and, and, and faith minorities. As far as 
uh, looking at the impact of 9-11 uh, and subsequent consequences. Uh, I'm not aware of studies that, that have continued to look at that, uh, but I do know that um, we have a responsibility uh, to build upon that body of work uh, and further document and characterize uh, the consequences of a moment like this uh, on, on health outcomes broadly. Um, and, uh, and, and I do hope that... Um, that researchers continue that work. We're speaking with Abdul El-Sayed, whose book is Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic. Part of the book is is telling your very interesting story, and part of the book is is sort of your your medical diagnosis of, of U.S. Uh, society and politics. Uh, what's, what, what's your diagnosis in summary? Yeah, well, let me step back. And, you know, I ran for office in Michigan, and I trained as an epidemiologist. I thought that when I had become a candidate that I was putting uh, the epidemiologist in my head to rest for a while. But as I drove home from these furthest reaches of Michigan, after having met voters in their uh, community centers and in, in their living rooms, I, I realized that the epidemiologist in my mind, I'd, I'd sort of I'd bring back out and have a conversation. And that conversation was about what I saw in communities across the state. And I had thought that the conventionalism was true. There was no way that folks in Detroit or Flint, uh, where people are predominantly black, would have the same set of challenges as people in Pataki or the Upper Peninsula, where people are predominantly white. But I was completely wrong. No matter where I went, people were talking about the same set of issues, un- in unable to, perform, to afford health care, uh, the fear of what might happen uh, if they got sick. The fact that, you know, Nestle uh, can, can bottle unlimited amounts of water in our state uh, for less than it costs a lot of families to, to have water for a month. The fact that their kids' schools look exactly the same way they did when they went there 30 years ago. And these challenges, um, they really led to a broader pattern, which was this epidemic of insecurity. The fact that we in this country uh, suffer this existential dread and fear and anxiety about the future, because all we've experienced over the past 20 to 40 years is the experience of loss, watching as the institutions that we've relied upon to provide us the basic means of a dignified life uh, have all but failed us because they've been sold to the highest bidder uh, who has leveraged the ability to exclude us um, from those services or so degrade those services uh, so that they could profit off of them. And it's the same whether you're talking about a healthcare system that's run uh, largely to the well-being of large corporations rather than patients, uh, or a crumbling American infrastructure, or an economy that uh, has chewed up jobs to spit out gigs, uh, or an election system that's more uh, focused on delivering large bundles of money uh, to K Street from corporate pockets than uh, enabling people to vote. And so this epidemic of insecurity, I believe, is the explanation for uh, our polarizing uh, and, and, and broken politics. In the book, you've got uh, 13 general areas of proposals for how to fix things, all of which I think are right on track. Uh, and, the, and the first one, uh, appropriately enough, is, is Medicare for All. Um, can you talk about uh, the need for that? I, I mean, I was I was uh, interested in the fact that in the book you have all these comparisons between the United States and Egypt and how the how many privileges there are of uh, living in the United States. But then Egypt actually does a better job negotiating with the drug companies than the United States, right? That's right. That's right. And you know, we are the richest, most powerful country in the world, and it is crazy to me that 30 million Americans still don't have health care. In fact. That number went up another 5 million just in this 
pandemic alone. And the reason our healthcare excludes so many people is because it is so expensive. And it is so expensive because it exists across uh, negotiations between <coughs> payers or health insurers, uh, 7,000 of them across this country, and providers or hospitals and doctors. And neither of them have an incentive to lower costs. In fact, they collude with each other in local communities um, to bring uh, other competitors to their knees and then buy them up. And that's why we've had this major consolidation. But what happens is the costs go up and up and up. And so what's, the way that insurance companies got away with charging uh, those higher rates is by introducing uh, what they call, quote-unquote, cost sharing. They, you know, we pay them every two weeks or every month a certain premium. And you think that you're going to be insured, right? The operative word of insurance is sure. And then you get sick. And if you get sick, you then end up having to pay this deductible, uh, which is the amount of money you have to pay, in fact, the paywall, to get access to the money you already paid into your insurance. And this is the state of things in the American healthcare system. Uh, meanwhile, um, you've got corporations, particularly pharmaceutical corporations, uh, who have lobbied so intensely, right, to the tune of $4.4 billion over the past, uh, over the past 20 years, so that our largest uh, state-sponsored uh, health insurance program, which is Medicare, can't actually negotiate uh, with those prescription drug companies. It makes no sense. Um, and so uh, you've got inflating prices, 10% of Americans without health care insurance at all, and the rest of us so worried about getting sick um, that, uh, that we're going without sometimes necessary care even when we're insured. Um, how do you fix it? Medicare for all. It's a simple, elegant solution to all of those problems by creating a government monopsony for healthcare. What I mean by monopsony? We know that a monopoly is a single seller of a good, but a monopsony is a single buyer of a good. And just like a single seller of a good can dictate prices, so can a monopsony. And if the U.S. government were to buy healthcare on all our behalf, it could reduce the cost of healthcare, cover everybody, reduce a lot of the unnecessary overhead we have in our system, uh, and allow everybody access to high-quality care, uh, independent of where they live, what they make, how they're employed, uh, or what their life circumstances are. And it's just, to me, it's a no-brainer um, if we are willing to meet the moral necessity of this moment, particularly given this pandemic. I believe we need to invest in Medicare for All. It's been tried and proven in many countries, and it polls very high. Uh, why is Joe Biden opposed? Well, um, I think the, the, the vice president is coming out of an administration where uh, they worked really hard to uh, empower people through health care through the ACA, and feels that he wants to continue to build uh, upon the ACA. This was an issue that was uh, litigated intensely in the primary. Um, you know, I believe in Medicare for All, but at the same time, uh, I was appointed to the Unity Healthcare Task Force uh, by um, uh, Senator Sanders, and we knew that we weren't going to be able to uh, turn Joe Biden into Bernie Sanders. But we were also able uh, to meet this moment and recognize that COVID-19 has fundamentally changed the conversation that was had during the primary about health care. Um, to make the public option that, that, that Vice President Biden ran on uh, so much more robust than it was, to make it truly public, uh, to make sure that it offers zero deductible to every single individual, uh, to make sure that it is highly subsidized, in fact, fully subsidized uh, for families earning less than 200% of poverty, which would uh, map to about earning $52,000 a year for a family of four, uh, and that it would finally allow um, uh, Medicare to... Uh, negotiate prescription drug costs on behalf of every single American. Um, it's not, you know, I'm not satisfied. I believe in Medicare for all, but I do believe uh, it is vastly superior to what we have right now and vastly, vastly superior uh, to anything Donald Trump 
uh, keeps saying that he's going to uh, to, to, to deliver, uh, but seems never to uh, to actually get to. What do you think ought to have been done in a in a well functioning society and government uh, when COVID nineteen was just getting started? Well, let me tell you, there are so many things that we should have done differently. Well, number one, right, a pandemic is kind of like a wildfire. Ideally, right, you want to put the fire out before it ever spreads. And if you can do that, uh, then you never have a pandemic in the first place. We should have been able to do that. The problem is, is that the institutions that were created to do just that were disbanded or underfunded under the Trump administration. Second, even while it was small, uh, we needed to get around it, meaning we should have invested in contact tracing and testing really early on uh, so that we were able to keep it small when it was small. But as it grew, the lockdowns uh, that we experienced in March and April and into May, uh, and even June, were super critical to being able to, to knock it back so that we could do the testing and contact tracing that we needed. The problem is there was no federal leadership. And so, you know, a true testing pipeline and, and contact tracing capacity was never established in our country. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we saw as cases, again, started to uh, increase in, uh, in the summer months. Um, we have needed uh, centrally driven, uh, scientifically uh, 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 focused um, and, and um, uh, uh, endorsed uh, policies to take on this pandemic from the very beginning. Um, and we haven't gotten that. Instead, we've gotten president, a president who uh, denied the pandemic and then obfuscated around it and then uh, interfered with uh, his top public health officials. Uh, and his top public health agencies and the CDC and the FDA, uh, and is now trying to politicize uh, the response. And meanwhile, uh, 200,000 people have died and counting, uh, and millions more livelihoods have been destroyed. Families have have been left with a permanent hole uh, in their fabric because they've lost loved ones and uh, lost um, uh, their, their savings. Uh, and all of this could have been prevented if we were willing to invest in public health from the very beginning. It seems that the U.S. On, on this, as on some other issues, has done uh, worse than just about anywhere else on Earth. But there's sort of a political ideology where you're just supposed to believe that the United States does better than anywhere else on Earth, uh, regardless of the facts. And, and I'm struck by the fact that in your book, there's so much comparison with Egypt and with the rest of the world. And I wonder, has anyone ever done a study of the correlation between people who are working to make the United States better and people who have lived abroad? Because it seems to me there would be on a near, nearly 100% correlation. Well, I'll tell you, you know, nobody comes to this country because they hate this country. <laughs> they come to this country because they believe in what this country can offer them. And, you know, I, I know my, my dad, um, you know, he had other opportunities to go elsewhere, but he chose to come to the United States of America because he believed in the ideals of this country and wanted to invest in this place. Um, and, you know, you, you look at, uh, you know, even uh, the number of, um, of small businesses or even Fortune 500 uh, companies that have been founded by immigrants, children of immigrants, it is uh, disproportionate. And, um, you know, the other thing is that you start to appreciate truly what is unique about this country uh, when you live in another one. I, I remember when, uh, when I was a teenager, my grandmother uh, pulled me aside and told me, you know, you can't say anything bad about, uh, about the, the, the political leaders here specifically the president. And I was a bit of an, of an iconoclast. So I, uh, I, the next time we were out, I used some of the choice words that my cousins had taught me about the then president, Hosni Mubarak. And um, you know, she pulled me back inside very quickly. 
uh, and, and gave me an admonition. I was like, look, nothing happened. I'm fine. Uh, until later that day. And later that day, uh, we had plainclothes cops come to the house. Now, my grandfather sold vegetables in an Egyptian street market his whole life, one of the toughest people you'll ever meet. Um, and I had never seen him scared. And he came up to me, and he had this fear in his eyes. And he said, go get your passport. And when I brought it, he almost held it up as a talisman against those plainclothes police officers, told them, look, he's an American. Uh, you can't touch him. He has the freedom of speech. And they went away. And I was really lucky that evening because, you know, if I were one of my cousins, I would have been disappeared. Um, nobody would have heard me from me for a while, if ever. Right. Um, you know, that is the reality of what we have to protect here. And one of the things that those freedoms give us in this country is the capacity to correct. That, I think, is the most incredibly American thing, is that we don't necessarily get it right the first time. And anybody who thinks we do does not understand patriotism. It's that we get it right because we recognize our wrongs and seek to correct. And, um, and you know, I think as, as a child of immigrants, as somebody who spent time uh, in the place that my parents came from, I came to appreciate what that means and the hallowed responsibility of doing that. And I think that, you know, that, that gives you a sense of what is possible, but also also how much there is to be lost and also how fickle um, uh, uh, change can be sometimes. And so we've got to be willing to protect this system that we have from the kind of encroachment of fascism that we're starting to see uh, from people like Donald Trump. And I, I see this as one of the most important responsibilities uh, that we all have. I know what it's like not to have that basic freedom of speech, and none of us ever want to get there. It's time we stand up protect it. I very much appreciated in the book uh, how straightforward and, and honest and open you were about U.S. foreign policy, uh, the fact that the U.S. government was supporting Hosni Mubarak, that, that Barack Obama was supporting him, that the United States is arming and funding dictatorships around the world and waging wars for oil and so forth. It's it's very hard to find anyone in, in, in federal level, national level politics in the United States, from the Democratic Party uh, in particular, who, who will even mention the existence of foreign policy. And here you're someone who ran for state-level office, and, and you're willing to, uh, to talk quite, uh, quite honestly about it. Um, I, I very much appreciated that, uh, that section of your book. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I spent too much time abroad and talked to too many people who live uh, in the countries that our country, unfortunately, has uh, marginalized and, um, and often abused um, to, uh, to not see it that way. And I think we have a responsibility uh, in our country. Uh, to call ourselves to task so that we are honest about waging our highest ideals, not just at home, but abroad. And, um, you know, I believe deeply in this country, and I believe in this country's ability to correct. And it's not until we are willing to stand up and call out the things that we have done uh, that have damaged lives and livelihoods abroad uh, that we will get get around to correcting it. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think about... Um, you know, the beauty of our ideals. And I think about uh, what happens when we fail to live up to them abroad. And I think about what the consequences um, for those ideals are in the minds of impressionable young people uh, in those countries who want nothing uh, less than to be able to live with the same freedoms that we have. Uh, and yet oftentimes we put our own uh, short-term self-interest uh, or, or calculated self-interest ahead of our long-term self-interest in uh, and, and just as importantly, the interests uh, of people who want the same values uh, and support the same values that we do.
And I, I believe there's something about leading by example and leading with your values that really ought to matter in the world. It certainly ought to. I, I think a lot of people probably uh, took heart and, and found uh, reason to work for your campaign for governor in Michigan. And I know that a lot of people uh, were encouraged by Bernie Sanders' campaign for president. Uh, and, and he was polling better than the other guy against Trump. And yet, for some reason, the Democratic Party closed ranks and, and shut him down. Uh, what what was the reason for that? Uh, and what hope can people find in investing in that party now? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I was a big supporter of Bernie Sanders, and I campaigned for him all over the country. And um, I think he would have been a great president. And I know uh, that his policies would have been incredible for Americans. Um, right now, he is not our nominee, and I, uh, I, I, I know um, that uh, the, the policies that Joe Biden is running on um, are so much better than what Donald Trump has done and would do with another four years. And so, you know, I, I think about it as Bernie wanted us to run in the direction of progress. Um, and if I have a choice between maybe walking in the direction of progress versus being dragged backward on my ass uh, in the direction of uh, make America great again, I'll pick walking any day. <laughs> and, um, and so we have a responsibility uh, to support Joe Biden uh, and to get him elected president and a responsibility on day one uh, to hold him and his administration accountable uh, to, um, uh, to, to the people who struggle every single day uh, in this country. Now, um, you know, the, the thing about party politics is that they're extremely complex, and you know, I know this from uh, my own experience running for office. Um, and, you know, I, I, I know that because Bernie ran, uh, he has held accountable that system. Um, and unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't operate in his favor this time around, but I do know that he's made it that much easier uh, for a progressive to win in the future. Our job um, is to continue the, the, the way forward uh, and to continue to make gains to build a party that is uh, more transparent and uh, more um, embracing of uh, of its future, which which is young and, and younger and and, and, and and huge towards uh, people from diverse backgrounds um, and people who believe that we've got to fundamentally rethink so many of the systems uh, that have locked people out. With uh, less than a minute left, uh, what are you planning next, and where can people go to to keep up with you? Well, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a father of a two-and-a-half-year-old, and, a, half year old, and it, you know, a friend of mine told me, he said, you know, there are a lot of things that, uh, that, that you can do that other people can do, too. But the only one thing um, that you can do uniquely is be a father to your daughter. And I take that really seriously. And so I hope that informs um, the, thing, the way I think about what's next. You know, to me, I'll be honest, um, watching this pandemic, uh, I, I realize that um, I, a, I feel a real responsibility to be a part of uh, bringing it to a close and and, 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 and and rebuilding so that this never happens again. And I'd love the opportunity to be able to work on that. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the world is a complex place and one never really knows what direction uh, things are going to go. But to me, it's the same set of values that uh, led me into medicine and led me into public health and led me to run for office um, that I hope will continue to lead me moving forward. And I think to write this book, which I highly recommend, it's called Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic by our guest, Abdul El Sayed. Abdul, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope that uh, I'll get to talk to you again. We've got a next book coming out 
uh, called Medicare for All, a Citizen's Guide, comes out in February, and folks can check out a little bit more um, on my website, abdulalsayed.com, or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at abdulalsayed, no dash, or uh, follow me on Facebook at Abdul for Michigan. Um, it was really a privilege to be with you. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to, uh, to talking again soon, okay? This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.